Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for, yeah, for every person, every family represented here. We thank you especially on a day when we're reminded in the midst of Easter of death and resurrection, that your death is our death, and that your resurrection is our resurrection, God. And we pray that you'd stir us to joy and to hope. We pray that as we look to your word, that your spirit would speak to each of us, uh, but especially would speak to us corporately, that we together would discern uh, yeah, what your word to us today is and how we ought to respond. And we pray that you would move us to worship, that your word would have a newness to it. It would not feel the same. Yeah, but you would speak something new to us, we pray today. In Jesus' name, amen. beginning in verse 15 of Galatians 2. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law... No one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And this life, I now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. The word of the Lord. Amen. Well, if you were with us last week, you remember we were in Philippians 3. If you weren't, that's okay. It's not a big deal. Uh, but we were continuing in our Easter series. And in this Eastertide series that we're in, we've been asking the question, as we reflect on the resurrection of Jesus, how do we inhabit the resurrection? How do we inhabit the resurrection? And I know that may sound uh, a little different. What we mean is, is how does resurrection become a part of who we are? Not just an event in Jesus's life, something that we look back to and celebrate, not just an event in our future that we look toward to in eternity, in the reality of the kingdom, right? But something that is real and present in my life. Resurrection like a garment, like a habit I put on day after day. What does it look like for resurrection to become a part of who I am? And last week, we were talking specifically about righteousness. What it what it means to be righteous. What do we even mean when we use that sort of language? And how what it means to be righteous has nothing to do with, in their case, the law, or in our case, whatever other standard we might be trying to measure our lives by. We're all trying to measure ourselves somehow. And Paul wants you to understand that righteousness comes not from whatever standard that you have in mind. It's all about Christ having made you righteous. You aren't trying to become more righteous. You are being made righteous. It is this, a decision God has made. 
But there were many people in the Galatian church, just like in the Philippian church, who came in as people who had been Jews for many years and converted to the Christian faith, and they brought with them this idea that more was necessary. In order to be truly righteous, someone would have to, to live according to Jewish customs, right? Circumcision, dietary laws, maybe even festivals that they had traditionally celebrated. And Paul confronts all of this. Like Paul is arguing in the strongest possible terms that we cannot do this, right? He argues that the death and resurrection of Jesus has created a whole new people of God, right? And the wall, which is what he uses to describe it in Ephesians, the dividing wall of hostility that separated Jew from Gentile or righteous people from sinful people. He's saying all of that came down. God has created a new people of God, one people of God. And so there's this interesting thing we have to consider. I'm not trying to be more righteous, right? Because that makes us self-righteous. Jesus is trying to help us understand this over and over again. We need to be made righteous. But you may have left with another question. You may have found yourself asking something else, right? If I'm not made righteous by this standard that I measure, which is much easier, by the way. It's much simpler to think about things in that way. If I'm not measured by that standard, if that's not the standard I'm supposed to live up to, what is the standard? What is the new standard for the people of God? What does righteous look like? Like, how would I identify someone? What makes me call someone righteous? And I think, generally, we tend to say something like love, uh, we would say that's how you identify a Christian, right? We think of Jesus in, in John 13. He says, by this, all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. But Paul wants to start even further back. Before we can get to love, he wants to start with faith. Paul says it's faith that is the birthmark of a believer. This is the thing that marks us, that identifies us. And I think any of us kind of, like if I gave you three tries, you'd probably come up with faith, right? That's what righteousness looks like. Faith. That's what a believer looks like. But here's the problem. If that's the answer to our question, I think it only presents us with more questions. It creates more questions because then we say, what about faith though? Faith has always been one of those really, I don't know about for you, it's always felt like one of those vague spiritual terms that we use in the church and we throw it around a lot and we all kind of mean the same thing, but we're not all really that sure exactly what faith is. It's easy for us to misunderstand it at some level. Because faith has such an intangible quality about it. You can't see faith. If someone tells you they believe something, you just kind of have to have faith in whatever they're telling you. You just have to trust them. You don't know if they actually believe this thing. This is why we end up in this question of like, well, I assume this person is a believer. I assume this person is serious about their faith. We just have to take them at their word. And I think a lot of this comes from the fact that we just misunderstand faith altogether. And if I were to ask you, what does faith mean? Last week we're asking, like, what does righteous mean? This week, like, what, what does faith mean? Most of us would say belief. I believe something, Right? I believe, fill in the blank. But belief is another one of those very kind of vague words in a lot of ways. Like, what, what do we mean when we say belief? 
Some of us have one thing in mind. Some of us have other things in mind. And in the church for a very long time, if you've been in church, you've probably heard this. We've been taught straight out of Ephesians, straight out of Paul's letters, that salvation comes by grace through faith, right? And this is important. It's not something we have done. It comes by faith, belief. And so then, inevitably, we say, wait, if salvation comes by my faith, is that not something I'm doing? Is believing not the action that somehow activates my salvation, that makes me righteous? Is belief not another one of those works, another thing that I'm doing, right? And we know that that's wrong because we've been taught that salvation comes by grace through faith. It's not something I'm doing. And so we say, well, then that means faith must be something else, right? And so faith has become more and more vague and nondescript. We don't know exactly what it means. And for many people... Faith is just like a, another feeling. It's a thing you feel. You had an experience at some point in your life. Maybe you've had lots of experiences, an encounter with, with the risen Lord Jesus, like the Holy Spirit has spoken. You've had these moments where you were aware something was happening, right? And faith is that for you. It's a collection of all of those kinds of feelings, right? And you feel faith. You feel like you believe, right? So the sense is, if that's how I see faith, that if I believe with enough intensity, if I believe with enough consistency throughout my life, well, then I can be saved. Obviously, that, that doesn't work. Not just because it can't be about something I do, but because my feelings constantly waver. My feelings constantly change. For others, people would think about faith or belief, and it's, it's very mental, it's all about understanding, something I know, something I trust, and I agree with at some level, right? So you give me a list of things, maybe the Nicene Creed, and you say, go down the list and tell me what you think, right? And I consent, I concur, I agree, I believe these things. That's what it is. It's about agreement. It's about me checking a box. I say yes. And for many people, that's what it means to follow Jesus, it's just agreeing with these things. I agree with what you're saying. I feel the same thing that you feel. I've had that experience. And yes, all of that is an aspect of faith. But when Paul talks about faith, or if you've ever read James, when they talk about faith, there's something far more robust, something more fully formed. The whole passage is built around verse 16, right? And if we read it right, what we find is that Paul is trying to give us something different, a different picture of what faith is supposed to look like in the life of a believer, that something more than just your agreement mentally, more than just a mental assent, more than just a, a feeling or an experience, Paul wants us to build our lives on something more solid than that. Paul wants us to found our lives on something more than just our feeling or our thoughts because both of those things are constantly changing the older we get, the more our life ebbs and flows, these things change. I think about Hebrews. In Hebrews 11, Ryan and I were talking about this this week. If you read the oldest kind of versions, it'll use the, the translation substance. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Hebrews wants you to understand faith has substance to it. It's not just this abstract idea. Faith has substance. 
Paul wants you to see the substance of faith is not my faith, but the faith of Christ. The faithfulness of Christ. That's what we're going to talk about today. My faith is just a response to Christ's faith, Christ's faithfulness. Jesus has been faithful to the will of the Father. He's been faithful to do what he was given to do. Christ has been faithful to the end, even to the point of death on a cross, right? And it is that faithfulness, that faith, that is what makes me righteous and not something I do. That's what makes me whole. That's what gives me life. It's not just my own faith, something I feel or something I think, but something that has been done for me. So I know, guys, we're, we're getting real theoretical here. How are we feeling? Are you guys okay with getting our nerd on today? For just a minute, I promise. We're just going to do a little bit of hair splitting stuff for just a second. You guys are like, we're, we're already kind of there, dude. You're, you're ruining our day. But just stick with me. I promise I'm going somewhere. If you look at verse 16, Paul writes the word faith three different times in a single verse. And it feels a little repetitive, right? Three different times in this one verse, he's emphasizing faith. And if you look at most translations, every time Paul says faith, it translates it the exact same way. Faith in Christ is the phrase. Faith in Christ, faith in Christ. Every time, okay? So Paul says something like this in our translation today. We know that we are justified by faith in Christ. And so we too have put our faith in Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ. Okay, it's the same every time, right? And it, it's a mouthful and it sounds very repetitive because it is. But there's actually more here. And this is hard because translation is difficult. We're talking about a, a dead Greek language. Like, how do you do this well? Three times Paul says faith. But it's not identical. He's using the word faith differently some of the time. Right? So two times he says it, and it's a noun. One time in between, it's a verb, right? And it's different. That second time when he says it, it's our faith that's in focus, right? We believe, he says. We believe in Christ Jesus. We put our faith in Christ Jesus is how we would say it. But the other two are different. These nouns are different. They're a specific kind of noun. They're possessive nouns. And I know that's grammar and it's boring, but stay with me, right? If it's a possessive noun the word faith, then who possesses the faith? Paul is talking about Jesus and he's talking about us. Is it our faith or is it Jesus's faith that Paul is talking about when he uses these words? The two are different. So the question is, whose faith? And check this out. Look at your footnotes. Maybe you don't even have your Bibles on hand. Look on your screen. There may be these little notes. Check this out if you don't have it now. Check it at home. I don't know you guys are thinking footnotes seriously right now because most of us like we open up have you guys ever done that where you open up a book and half the page is footnotes and you're like man this is awesome because I don't have to read the footnotes this page is going to go so fast you feel great about yourself because we're all skipping the footnotes but sometimes the footnotes have really good stuff right read your footnotes because what it'll tell you is that your 30 something year old pastor is not just making this stuff up like there's this whole committee of academic Christians who agree that this could be translated differently. And your footnote may say, instead of, we put our faith in Christ, we are justified by faith in Christ, it might say, we are justified through the faithfulness of Jesus. Not through my faith in Christ, that's not how I'm justified, I'm justified by the faithfulness of Jesus. 
That's different, right? And I know some of you guys are still thinking that feels pretty small. Like that doesn't feel like that makes much of a difference. But listen to how different this is. I'm going to throw this up on the screen. Here we go. This is helpful. If we translate it slightly differently, we know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's how I'm justified, by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus. That's our faith. We have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law. And I know, again, it feels like semantics, but that changes everything. It changes everything, right? The subject in Paul's phrase isn't my faith. It's not the intensity of my faith, the genuineness of my faith, whatever I might have in mind when I read that. It's Christ's faith to do what he's been asked to do. It's Christ's faithfulness. And my faith is only a response to what he's done. I trust him because he, he has already shown himself to be faithful. I have faith in him because he has shown himself to be faithful. This is what justifies me. And maybe you're still sitting there going like, I, I don't know where you're taking me with this. But this is a big deal. Like, just try to think about this. I know, like, the word faith, again, it is so hard to articulate faith. How do you put words on something like faith? It's hard, right? So think about something that's simpler. April and I, and, uh, in 2014, we bought our first house over in Crestwood, uh, and we loved that little house. We lived there for about six years, and uh, I remember one of the first things I saw when we walked into our yard the first time was this little sign, a little blue sign. You've all seen it before, and it says, secured by ADT, and I thought to myself, that's nice. This house has got a security system. I didn't know that, and then my next thought was, wait. This house needs a security system? Is the neighborhood not good? Like, what's up? They're like, are people going to break in? Like, what am I supposed to do? Then the next thought was, wait, if, I, if I'm going to have a security system, that's going to cost me money every month. And I'm young, and I just bought a house. I don't have any more money. And so I did what a lot of people do. I left that little sign in my front yard, knowing full well I didn't have a security system. And I slept a little bit better at night, knowing that maybe the sign would deter someone. They wouldn't want to try because I got the sign. And some of you guys know what I'm talking about. You've left a little sticker on your window at your apartment. You've left that little sign in the front yard, secured by ADT. But is that what the sign actually means? Is the sign the thing that secures my home? No, obviously not. What secures my home is the elaborate system of sensors that are inside. That's what makes the home secure. And the sign is just something put there to advertise. And Paul is saying the same thing. Like, you can't get this mixed up. Don't be confused in all of this. What makes you secure? What makes you righteous? What secures eternal life for you? What brings you peace is not your faith. It's Christ's faithfulness. My faith is just a sign pointing toward the faithfulness of Jesus, pointing toward the fact that I trust because he is trustworthy. He's shown himself to be. Why am I belaboring this point? Why are we this far into a sermon and you're still saying the same thing? Why am I belaboring this point? And it's because there are so many people in the church, people who've been baptized, 
People who say, I believe week after week after week. People who are trying to follow Jesus faithfully, who are trying to live the life of the kingdom of God. And yet they find themselves over and over again wondering, what do I actually believe? There are these seasons, these moments where they wrestle with doubt. They find their faith wavers. Maybe it's in the midst of of really difficult circumstances, in the midst of grief, in the midst of loss. Maybe it's in the midst of temptation or or addiction or or confusion. We find ourselves saying, like, "I, I don't know necessarily what I believe. I feel like what I believe is changing. In the middle of this, like, I'm just not so sure. It's like when my my child looks at me and says, hey, Dad, how do you get faith? How do you get faith? Where does it come from? What makes that happen? Because I want to make it happen. I want to believe. I want faith. But where does it come from? How do I make that happen? How do I have more faith, right? It's like the father in Matthew 17. He looks at Jesus and he says, I believe. Help my unbelief, right? Some of us find ourselves wrestling with that, living in that that painful tension, this sense of, I believe, obviously, but there is this this unbelief, this uncertainty sometimes. And inevitably, the next step we take, we begin to wonder if we actually have any of this faith, if we've ever actually really known the faith that Scripture is speaking of. And subsequently, we ask the question, are we really secure? Are we really at peace? We find ourselves there. And Paul says... It is Jesus' faithfulness to the Father. That's what steadies me. My wavering, constantly changing faith and thoughts. It's Jesus' faithfulness, not my faith. Because my faith may waver. Inevitably, it will. I may ask hard questions, but Jesus' faithfulness never wavers. And so many people in the, the church are walking away. Or they walk away for a season while they they wrestle with their questions. They think of themselves as some kind of like failed disciple. They feel like maybe they're illegitimate in some sort of way. And Paul is saying, you just need to cling to the unwavering commitment of Jesus. His unchanging faithfulness to his people. This is what makes you sure, certain. And these two things, when I talk about faith, they cannot be separated. My faith and the faithfulness of Jesus can never be separated. Because what's beautiful about the way Paul writes this is he begins verse 16 with the faithfulness of Jesus. And he ends verse 16 with the faithfulness of Jesus. And it's in between those two things that you find my faith. My faith is in between. The story begins and ends with the faithfulness of Jesus and not my own. This is what makes it secure. And I am called to believe that. I am called to cling to that, to have faith in that. Now, as we kind of move toward the end, right? Back to last week for a minute. Paul says, if we believe that, that faith is not just about my faith, it's about Christ's faithfulness, Paul says, then why? Why would we go back to that standard, trying to live according to some other standard? For them, it was the law. But why would we try to live to any other standard? If the standard is now faith, why would I go back to that? 
What if it's about faith and, and not just my faith, but Christ's faith to do what the Father asked him to do? Paul says, why then should you ask if you have everyone's approval? Why should they worry about what they eat or what they drink? Why should they worry about whether or not their Gentile children have been circumcised or not? Why should they be concerned about such things? Why should we worry if we're Christian enough, righteous enough, doing enough? Paul says, that wall has been torn down. Why would you try to rebuild it? Why would you try to reconstruct something? that has been torn down by Jesus. And he, he makes this statement. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And this life I now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God. Or we could say, according to this phrase that Paul is using, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. And you probably know this. Like, you know it well. I have been crucified. Maybe that was like a memory verse you grew up with. Do people do memory verses anymore? I feel like people don't talk about that much more. But that's a thing that you, you may be very familiar with. I have been crucified with Christ. But what's interesting is, is that phrase, crucified with Christ. It's only used in the New Testament five times. Okay, five times. It's pretty rare. Paul does it twice. In Romans, he says it. Romans 6. In Galatians 2 that we just read. The other three times are in the Gospels. It's Matthew, Mark, and John. Matthew, Mark, and John are trying to tell us about the crucifixion of Jesus. And when they tell us about the crucifixion of Jesus, they want us to know that Jesus was crucified as a criminal. He was punished like a criminal. And he was crucified alongside criminals. They saw him that way. He was just another criminal. They need you to know that. And all of these these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, they say that two thieves, these criminals, were crucified with Christ. And it's like Paul, when he uses this phrase, it's like Paul is trying to say, just like those criminals were crucified along Christ, you were crucified along Christ. We were there. The difference is we deserved it and he didn't. There was a reason we should hang there, but not him. And yet, if you remember the story, right, Luke tells it really fully, that there's a thief hanging there who, who mocks Jesus, and there's another thief who comes to the realization that there's something unique about Jesus, because he, among the three of them, is the only one who's willingly hanging there, who has chosen this willingly, yet he's the one who doesn't deserve it. And he's profoundly affected by it. And Paul is saying, just like the thief on the cross comes to faith, you are called to come to faith. You are called to believe. Let the faithfulness of Jesus, even to the point of death on a cross, let that draw you into deeper faith. You were dead just as Jesus was dead. And you are resurrected just as Jesus is resurrected. Paul is pressing this point, right? But if you were resurrected with Jesus, you no longer live. It is Christ who lives in you and, and, and through you. And he says, the life that you live, it's now marked by this thing, faith. Faithfulness. Christ's faithfulness and my faith in his faithfulness. And as the, the band 
moves this direction and we move toward the table. Um, I think it's good for us to remember Paul. Um, his words in 1 Corinthians 11 are that every time we come to the table, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the Lord's death. But if we take Galatians 2 seriously, it means every time I come to the table, I don't just proclaim Christ's death. If I've been crucified with Christ, I proclaim my own death every time I come to this table. Every time I come to this table, I proclaim that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. My life is now defined by a different standard, which is the faithfulness of Jesus. Not my own. You're measured by His faithfulness and not whatever you may do. Your faith, when, when someone asks, where does faith come from? Your faith comes from the faithfulness of Jesus. Who doesn't just die for us, he's resurrected for us, and he, he breathes his Holy Spirit onto his disciples. This is where faith is coming from. Not something I'm supposed to work up for myself, that I'm supposed to think hard enough about, or feel intensely enough about. No. We're measured by the faithfulness of Jesus. And his faithfulness, it, it produces something in us that our own faith cannot the faithfulness of Jesus produces the fruit of the Spirit, produces the, the life of the kingdom. It produces change that we can't affect on our own. My own faith, my own efforts constantly fail me and everybody else around me. But His faithfulness leads to obedience. His faithfulness leads me to take on the life of the kingdom, right? To bear this fruit. When we ask, like, what, what does faith mean? What exactly are we talking about? It's right there in the passage. Paul says, the life I live in the body, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. What it means for Jesus to have been faithful is that he has loved to the point that he's willing to give himself. Faith is not just a feeling. Faith is not just some collection of thoughts, some agreement. Faith produces something. Faith is never alone. When we say that we're justified by faith, that we've been saved by faith, faith is not just thinking something enough, feeling something enough. Faith is something more than that. Faith is never alone. Faith always comes with something else, with change. And there's so many people who find themselves in this place, so many people in the church who are trying to follow Jesus faithfully and they wrestle with doubts and they think they ought to be concerned. And it's not them. It's all these other people in our society that the church has convinced by saying, you are, you are saved by faith. And we've created this very benign form of faith that means nothing. A person says, yes, I believe. And they're completely disconnected from faith, from the church. They're doing it all on their own. They've made their peace with God and now they do what they want. And it's like Paul is saying, those are the people who have something to wrestle with because faith produces something. Faith is producing something. It is never alone. And the other thing we need to remember is that faith is never alone in another sense. It's not just about you. Faith is a thing that is made perfect in community. Faith can't be practiced alone. We come to faith, we make decisions on our own at some level, 
But it cannot be practiced alone. We are called into something else. We are called to respond to the faithfulness of Jesus together. Not just to, to wonder if our faith is enough. As it wavers, as it seems to change sometimes, we're called to look to the faithfulness of Jesus, to hold on to it evermore. This is where my hope comes from. Not from feeling something enough, not from doing something enough, but from evermore drawing nearer to Jesus. That's what we're inviting you to in the table. Come and acknowledge the death you have died with Jesus and look toward the resurrection that is ours in Jesus. That's the hope. That's what we're inviting you into. A faith that is more solid than just what you're feeling or what you're thinking. A faith that is built on Jesus and what he's done. So come in these moments. You can tear off a piece of bread. You can take a cup. Uh, and then you can move back to your seats. And as they finish playing this song, I'll come back up and we'll do this together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, for what you're, what you're still speaking through Galatians 2. We thank you for um, yeah, these moments where we, we have to ask sometimes confusing questions. And we have to kind of dig at some places maybe we haven't before. But I just pray, God, that you would you create within us a deep certainty, a deep security, a deep peace. Because the reality is some of us have never known peace. We, we wrestle most of our lives with, with some sort of angst or anxiety with our condition, with who we are, with whether we are enough. And I pray, God, that we can learn what it is to live this life that we're living in the body by faith. Trusting not in, in what we're able to do, but in what you've already done, and allowing that to produce something in us. Not needing to conjure something up so that everyone else will be convinced or so that we ourselves will be convinced, but allowing your Holy Spirit by the faithfulness of Jesus to produce something beautiful in us. And be at work, we pray in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen.